Studio S M L. Welcome to the Studio SML podcast. In this series of candid conversations, we talk to some of the most established architects and designers in Singapore about how they got to where they are today. Hear about their personal journeys and the highs and lows of running a design practice in Singapore. Enjoy the rest of this podcast. In 2022 Singapore, a relatively unknown young architect, Lim Xinghui of L Architects beat a short list of established architects and bigger projects to win one of the two Design of the Year awards at the Singapore Institute of Architects Architectural Design Awards 2022 with a modest entry of a kitchen appliance showroom. The world always root for the underdog and it is even more cause for celebration when women make it in the male dominated industries. We are delighted to know that Xinghui's phone has indeed been ringing quite a bit after her recent win. So as we are rooting for Xinghui to create her masterpiece, Kelly Cheng manages to catch the newly crowned winner for a heart-to-heart talk about her journey, her thoughts, her inspirations, her work, and her favorite pair of shoes. Hi Xinghui, how are you? Doing? Hi Kelly, how are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for being on uh, Studio SML. So uh, we'll just dive right in now. Uh, and as usual, we always like to start from the beginning. When did you first know that you want to be an architect? And uh, I read that your dad's actually an interior contractor and his family are in the tile business. So is, is that something that had an influence on you in being wanting to be an architect? I think I'm a classic example of someone that has gone through very mainstream education in Singapore, like the whole primary school, secondary school, JC, and then uni. But I've always loved the arts, but I went against that and I got myself into a science stream just because I was told that I could get into better courses in university. In fact, when I was in JC, I just became particularly strong in chemistry as a subject. And I thought I might just want to be a chemical engineer and perhaps work in a lab in some petroleum or pharmaceutical company my whole life and not be truly happy. (laughs) But when that time came to make that final decision, I actually intuitively flipped and I applied to the School of Architecture. Um, So back then we had to put um, architecture as first choice, otherwise our chances would be close to none. And then second choice, I put chem engine. So when my dad found out, he was so mad at me. Like he didn't speak to me for a week. He felt like I did it out of a whim. But the truth was I really didn't want to just, I was just very tired of continuing this whole mainstream education. And I wanted to start somewhere new and develop this natural aptitude that I figured I actually might have, but was just, completely untouched so yes it's true I see that you've been digging my dad is an interior contractor in fact my dad's family is either very artistic or very entrepreneurial individuals so my uncle was the first person that brought ceramic tiles into Singapore from Italy because he saw it in Milan Fair and then apparently they installed it in my grandmother's house to kind of test it out And then slowly, we brought in natural stone from Europe. 
like marble and granite to supply to the local market. Um, and then um, my dad himself is quite an artistic person himself. He actually loves to paint when he was young. And we do a lot of craft work at home previously, also as uh, kids. Uh, he actually wanted to study art overseas. But my grandfather just couldn't afford the tuition fees back then. They, they came from a really humble and like poor family. Lah. Yeah, and so there's this Chinese saying, right? Erumuran, which actually means gradually and subtly influenced by what you hear and, and, and see, uh, uh, what you hear and, and what people say. And I guess that that was what happened to me. Right. I'm uh, just curious, you said that when your dad found out that you wanted to do architecture, he was furious, but yes. why? <laughs> because all along, like, I was very set up, like, to continue this whole mainstream education, right? Yeah, and I mean, because he's in the industry, he understands, like, it is no joke, you know, like, the route, the path of an architect, what it entails and what you have to do. It's very tough, like, and he was... And, and and I think back then he felt like I didn't know what I was going into. Mm. Yeah, and so so he was like, no, are you sure you're going to do this? Mm. Why is it that all of a sudden you flipped? You know, yeah. So he was he was kind of like mad at me. <laughs> okay, so, so it's for your own good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question. Um, you did your architecture degree in NUS. Uh, looking back now, do you think there's anything you hope that the school syllabus could have included to better equip you as a fresh grad architect? Well, I thought about this before and I actually belong to the camp where I feel like you can't teach architecture. Really, you can't. You can only inspire. And so if you would like to kind of like train graduates to be project architects, I think that school syllabus can be curtailed to that but if you want to produce architects to do creative design work then we we need to provide the kind of environment to engage students in a deeper level of discourse more rigor in developing students critical thinking skills to me that's very valuable so you mentioned that uh, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's very hard to teach design in general, but you can inspire. So on that note, um, you know, like, uh, for example, in uh, AA in London, they actually, they are known for having uh, very famous architects to come and give lectures. And in fact, not just architects, you know, artists and designers and so craftsmen even. Um, and that kind of inspiration is, uh, I think it's very valuable for a lot of the AA grads. Now. I mean, they claim that they benefited from it. So is that something along the line of like, do you think that NUS could have done something similar, you know, in terms of that source of inspiration that you talked about? Definitely. Because I have actually attended uh presentation by Thomas Hedewick before in person. I think he he's coming down again for Singapore Design Week. Um, but I heard him speak in person at one of the years for uh, WAF, World Architecture Fest, that was held in Singapore. And I was very, very inspired by what he shared. Mm. Yeah, and his thought process. And because he's not trained as an architect, like the angle that he comes in to do design work is is very creative. Mm. So um I always welcome that kind of um 
I don't know, like schools would invite these people in, whether they are like what you say, whether they are architects or not, to come in and just do a simple sharing of how people actually do design work. I think it's always nice to have that. Yeah. You're not talking about Thomas Heatherwick. So um uh a, a question comes to mind also. I mean, it's something that I thought about, you know. Um, I mean we talked through six years of architecture education, which is damn painful. So what are your thoughts about someone who is not trained practicing architecture, you know? Do you, do you think... That it's... Yeah. Um, so go back to the first premise, right? So I feel like you cannot teach architecture. You can only inspire. So Thomas Hedwig is actually not the only example. Actually, mm-hmm. Tada also, right? He didn't have a formal education. Um, but would you say his work is not good? Um, not really, right? And um, you know h- how he is so hardworking, right? I mean, if you read his history before, he would actually um because he can't afford education, but then he will borrow all these books about Kabuzier and all, and and he starts tracing all their drawings at home, you know, to understand, you know, the spatial quality and why some things are designed in certain ways. Um, yeah, so for me, I, I just, I, I, I just want to disregard the background of that particular designer, whether he was had formal education or not. I think it's not important because I mean the truth is, um we put our physical works out there and it's so visible and yet so vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the work will speak for itself, whether it's good or not, whether it appeals to you or not. Yeah, yeah well said. So the, uh, another question about architectural education that I have is, um, do, you, do you feel that it's better to, for the school to include a sort of a broad-based syllabus to allow for easier diversification in case one doesn't want to practice architecture? Or do you think that the, the school actually has to deepen it even more, you know, to, to really inspire you to be a good architect? This is a very tough question, by the way. Okay, but for me, I think that if you enroll yourself to School of Architecture, you need to really want to do architecture more than anything else from the start. Otherwise, you will not have the determination to continue. Mm. And so to train students to have the option to pivot, to do something else, just doesn't seem quite right to me. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's like a second plan. Basically, no, there's no second plan. You know, like, do you really want to be an architect? Like Then you enroll yourself to School of Architecture. Mm. And so school has always been that place where I feel there should be a intense mixture of having your designs and propositions going through discovery and doubt, breakthrough and dead ends, stagnation and progress, just so that we can evolve as better designers after going through this series of struggles and uh, anxieties. I I can't think of a better place to do this than in school. You graduated in um, 2008, where, which was when the Lehman Brothers collapsed. Um, it was a time of doom and gloom for many, uh, especially fresh grads. Uh, can you share with us your memory of that year and you know what you went through? So I graduated in August 2008. Everything seems okay then, but all of a sudden within a month, because they collapsed in September, I think, 2008, 
then there was this um financial uncertainty and um I I was actually on a grad trip with some of my uni mates and then um my other uni mates actually uh kind of like told or like like someone texted me and said that hey uh you better start looking for a job <laughs> because there are a lot of companies that started uh freezing their headcount due to the impending financial uncertainty. And then uh I recalled uh uh Mr. Siumankok from MKPL uh sent me an email because oh. he he saw my thesis project back in NUS and he actually offered me to come in for an interview and subsequently also offered me a job. And so I took it. Yeah. yeah. And actually, to be honest, uh the pay that he offered was higher than most. Okay, that's good. That's good. Yeah, that's that's actually very good uh during that time. And so without hesitation, I took it. Okay, must be very uh, flattering for someone to hit you. Yes, I guess. But um, I wanted to tell you that a lot of my thesis mates, because like, I think a group of five or six of us, we we were actually taught by Prof. Eric LaRue, mm-hmm. uh, which still has a profound influence on me as a designer till today. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually find it, hard for me to articulate what he has taught me mm-hmm. but then you know his style of teaching is quite unique because he would repeatedly uh, try to make us drop all the formulas that we've learned so well in our undergrad years you know but yet keep a good balance of how like each of us uh, have our own interest in a particular subject he is a super super no-nonsense type of tutor which I appreciate. So for example, um, in bit of training you to communicate with drawings as a key presentation skill, uh, he would force us to draw in a way where our drawings speak for itself. So if we start rattling off and keep talking so much about design, but our drawings do not show, then he's going to say something like this, which is very classic. So we're like, this is not Department of English but Department of Architecture. Let your drawings communicate, you know? And then the best question he would throw at you is, where's the innovation in this project? Then you're like, you're like no, you cannot, you cannot explain, right? So that's why that year, I mean, I, I, I don't know what happened the year before, year after that year, a lot of us um, were offered jobs, like a lot of my thesis mates as well. So I wasn't a unique case, lah. I guess. Um, people out there saw that hey, this group of thesis work seems to have a kind of rigor. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like classic Eric to me. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he's a very good designer himself. Yeah, I love his works. Yeah. So uh, just like track a little bit. So you took a long trip to uh, Europe. What do you think is the value of uh, travel for a creative person? To expand... Uh, what we think we already know in our own home grounds, right? Um, and then t- I think it's good to travel to see what things has been done. And you know how like when we're in school, um, I mean, we will have all these magazines, right? Back then it was like uh, physical magazines of like all these works done by like, a, a lot of them were like from like, NVRDV, you know, and you see them, right? Uh, These magazines, and I wanted to experience it myself. I wanted to see it firsthand. So actually, 
I went to Netherlands and one of the projects I visited was Wazoko. It's this cantilevered uh, uh, building. Uh, it's very exaggeratedly cantilevered. Uh, and, and I went there and I saw and I was, I was quite taken back by it, like the skill and all. Like It's always good to experience it in person, right? Because I feel like works of architecture should be experienced in person. Mm. Uh, mm. Okay. And uh, so for you, did you have any like uh, moments of enlightenment in your travel? Um, okay, so uh, I think you, you realize that um, back in year two, uh, I actually did uh, persistent studies on uh, Miss Vendero, in particularly Barcelona Pavilion. Um, till today, I find that that building is amazing. Because if, I mean, you need to look at the lens of the context. It's it's built like what, 90 over years or 100 over years ago. But when you look at the work today, it's still so timeless and beautiful. And, and if you read, right, actually how he came up with the idea is very simple. Basically, he just questioned like, can I create a room with three walls? I mean, traditionally, rooms are created and bounded by four walls with uh, small fenestrations, right? And so uh, when I realized that, hey, actually a design idea can actually be coined in such simple terms, you know, and the design can still be, can still like, can still look so good and the spatial experience is is different, you know? Yeah, that's 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 what I, I took back from some of my travels. Yeah. Okay, now we will uh, continue to your early days of practice. You spent your first five years honing your skills at MKPL. Uh, what were some of the highlights and lowdowns? Uh, and what are the most important lessons that you took away from these five years? Highs was when we won design competitions. Like, because... At the start of my professional practice, um, a lot of times we young graduates will actually be like tasked to work on design competitions with uh, design directors. La. Yeah, and uh, sometimes we win, sometimes we don't. But in general, when we win, right, the morale is, is high. You know, like, cause we put in so much effort, many, many hours being spent, staying even overnight in office, right? But then it came to a point where uh, it became very tiring and just no longer sustainable. And, um, and then so I would say like my, so, so that's a high point. Low point. And low. Um, <laughs> huh? That was kind of like a high and low point, you say. Yeah, yeah, high correct, point. right? Yeah, because it's high because you won. But then after that, it really does take a toll on you. Yeah, and a lot of us will be like, oh, we, do, we, do, we don't want to do design competitions anymore. Can we like, can we like go to another team to like, maybe like run projects and, and stuff like that. Lah. Yeah. Um, you know, on the note of competition, right? Uh, I think this is kind of like a perennial kind of a trap 
you know, for people to do free work, right? Yes, <laughs> or rather, you are big. You are big on that, right? I, I, I mean, ethically, I'm really not for it, you know. Um, but I also understand that for a lot of, in particular, uh, small firms, you know, for to have some kind of a breakthrough. You sometimes need to write on this because otherwise, how else is anybody else going to give you a big job? Like you know, it's going to drop on your lap, right? So in that sense, you kind of like have to fight for it. And uh, my my tech is it's like a gladiator ring. Like everybody goes in and you just kill each other, and then you know the winner emerge. What's your take on that? I mean, I am so uh, I'm often perturbed about this whole issue about free proposals in terms of whether outright calling for it or through competition? Um, so through competition usually is, yes, everyone fight, right? And then like they would shortlist best five and this best five usually will be paid. Not a lot, but <laughs> nominal fee, lah, right? Not a lot, but, but better than nothing, right? Also, like to me, I can accept that like you select best five and you kind of like pay them for it mm -hmm. yeah but um, if I am very suspicious also like so if you are just you, you're calling this competition just to gather ideas just to gather free ideas then I'm against that uh, I don't I don't do free work in my office yeah I like I think maybe four years ago I've decided to do that because I think it kills the morale of my staff as well. Um, and I, I'm tired also, really, to do free work and do free pitching. And, and, and to be honest, um, if you want to do really good design work, uh, you need to spend a lot of time. Yep. And, and I just, like, if I do these free pitches, right, uh, I don't even feel proud of the design that I'm dishing out. Yeah, and to me, I question like, what's the point? Yeah. So no competitions as well for you? Um, I did take part in competitions because like what you said, you just said, young firms cannot just, there's no avenue to get big projects. Mm -hmm. Is it true that we can't do big projects? I think it's not true. We can. Yeah, I think we can. It's just that, uh, the only way out of this is to to join competitions and hopefully you win. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's interesting. I was having this kind of same talk with the solid plan guys, mm -hmm. and they said, yeah, small firms we can do big projects. It's not that we can't. The only thing that's holding small firms back is track record. You know, yeah. they, people always ask clients, say, what's your track record, right? If you haven't done a condo, you cannot do a condo. Then you'll never do a condo. <laughs> uh, it's really, it's a Yeah, I think, I think this front, maybe, maybe the government should do something about it also. Mm -hmm. The government has so many projects, right? Why don't just farm out projects for, for young architects? You know, like, if you feel like the scope is too big, a few of us can collaborate, you know? Why not? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so hopefully we have some government people listening to our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you did share uh, in private earlier that um, you almost gave up after the first year of practice. Um, can, you, uh, can you share a little bit like what were the 
what were the fatal points that made you almost, you know, miss this uh, wonderful journey that you're having now? Mm, so I think there's a, a complete drastic difference in what we were doing in school and all of a sudden we were thrown into professional practice. So the first of all, I really wanted to throw in the towel because I didn't expect the professional practice to be this demanding. And then, but then yet I was in a dilemma because I really truly like to do design work. And then, and then at the back of my mind, I'll be like, okay, if I don't do design work, I also don't know what other talents I have. So, so both ways is like existing the profession was going to be a big headache for me as well, you know, but then like the job itself is extremely challenging and the pace that we have to work and the kind of intensity that we have to farm out work and do design revisions, options after options, really just didn't feel sustainable for me. Yeah, but so thankfully, I had a I had a very good mentor at work who was also one of the directors in NKPR. So he's called uh, Mr. Chu Chi Kong. I know, uh, thank you. <laughs> you know, when we were practicing at Andrew Tan Architects, he was one of the key draftsmen and he was yes. so motivated, he went to do his degree. Yes, 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 yes. Yay, so you know him, okay? So you, 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 you can, I think you can understand. So actually, a lot of us that went in that year from NUS were mentored by him. So he was very good. He was, he, he is such a patient mentor like and very willing to teach so he's exceptionally strong in construction detailing contract and authority matters which are things that we generally don't touch on in school lah. so when I shared with him I said hey Chikong I I think I cannot already I I think I want to quit <laughs> then he was like um how about this uh you quit only after you complete your first project and then uh, I was in charge of doing uh, this 14 units of Strata Banglo project in Crescent Road. Uh, I don't know how or why I managed to stay for five years and, and then managed to complete that job. Maybe because it, back then it was like my baby, mm -hmm. right? I started it. I started the project from start and then to end until it got T.O.P., so maybe like in between, like to call it quits, I felt like it was a little, um, like I, I didn't want to let go of this baby. Like I just wanted to see it to completion. And so um, true enough, when I completed that first build project, um, I tasted that bittersweet uh, success. Um, something that I cannot really describe, but you know, whatever you draw on a piece of paper really gets materialized, right? That kind of work satisfaction is... Is great. Yeah. And then after that, um, I left. Uh, and then after that, shortly later, they actually entered this project for World Architecture Festival and it got shortlisted. Wow. That's great. Yeah. And also good that along the way, you got your, uh, you passed your professional exam. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I got my licensure from yeah. there. Yeah. That's great. Um, okay. So, so I have a little bit of a contra controversial question here. Some architectural firms feel that there should be some kind of an internship for fresh grads, as it takes a year or two at least to train uh, a fresh grad architect to inaugurate them into the industry. Um, that, of course, you know, you can see it as 
sort of like an excuse to to pay you know a fresh grad less uh, or whatever you know what's your take on that now that you also run your own practice you know you've been an employee and now you're an employer i would say a complete no to this because we would really just be killing more young architects uh, by doing that. I mean, whoever, okay, I, I'll be a bit more sensitive on this topic because I've only uh, worked in MKPL Architects, but so I'll share uh, what I know from that five years. So whoever said that has no inkling about how lowly architectural graduates are getting paid and the long hours rendered, I mean, that is crazy, right? So can you imagine like whatever we're getting is already not great and you're going to lower it even further? Mm -hmm. Who's going to work for you, right? Um, and if I got my research correctly, the current pay is probably the same as what I was getting back in 2008. Maybe a couple hundred dollars more. But the cost of living has been increasing. Yes. Yeah, and if you, and if you truly want a real insight, I can tell you that at the earlier stage of our careers, right, a lot of us will be thrown into doing design competitions for the firm mm -hmm. uh, because uh, it's just a natural path because we could do nice presentation drawings, schematic diagrams alongside with the design director. And I've witnessed how many of these competitions have been won and then it translates into real projects, right, that became bread and butter for the firm. So to, so to really to say that we contribute little at the start is really not true. Mm. Um, but of course, gradually, because we want to take our license, the firm will also slowly give us local projects where we would then be able to fulfill our exam requirements and from there, pick up other critical uh, skill sets like understanding codes, contract matters. And I think the firm really should have that kind of patience to impart those skills. Well said. I hope this is a very clear message to firms who are offering this kind of a uh, uh, bad system. Would call it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in relation to that, you know, which is uh, something that you spoke about a little bit just now, also, there's uh, much talk about this mass exodus, you know, of young architects from our industry. Um, what is the what's your view on that? What do you think uh, can be done um, to better the situation? Also, because you sit on the SIA committee now, like are there some measures, practical measures, you know, that that could make the situation better? Okay, my, I mean, my heart really goes out to them for real. I'm not saying this just because I want to say it. Uh, because it really is very tough. And I can say that because I was once there, right? Mm -hmm. And I can understand why this happens because we we compete with people that are doing free work all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we service clients that want design work to done within short span of time, doing multiple options. Mm -hmm. This whole equation is just wrong. Yeah, so if we don't, we don't tweak this, um, and designers don't band together to stop doing free work and stop undercutting fees in order to win work. We would just be, you know, creating a culture of industry cannibalism. Because look at this, low fees would definitely trickle down and mostly it translates to many things like low remuneration for staff and having to load them with multiple projects at once because you're still running a business after all, right? Mm. And 
yeah, so I, I actually hope that um, architects, designers, we all can band together mm. yeah, to try to change the situation. Yeah, so it's really about saying no to low-paying jobs and, mm. <laughs> and free proposals and <laughs> changes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, okay, I, I mean, it's not that I'm, I'm putting up a front in front of my staff, but when they go with me on this, like to meet up with potential clients, right? I, I really I really say it to the client, I say, I'm sorry, but uh, we do not do any work, any any form of design work up front before any formal engagement. And, and my staff would hear me say this to the clients. Yeah. yeah. And I think it helps with the morale because I put myself in their shoes, like who who wants to be in office doing free work after free work and after free work? It's, exactly. it's, yeah. yeah. And I think this, this kind of uh, thing is also especially unsustainable for small firms because we are already so strapped for manpower <laughs> then still must go and do free work it's it's really <laughs> yeah it's just not not workable yeah so uh okay i usually ask this question at the back but i decide to bring it up front any advice for fresh grads and archi students i think most importantly is to pursue your own personal interests and whatever natural aptitudes you feel like you might have. Because if you if you love what you do, in those trying moments, say, for example, you have to service a nasty client, even if the project was heavily criticized, even if people do not like your project and you didn't win any awards for it, at the end of the day, if you were exploring meaningful issues that you truly care about, then you will have that kind of energy and momentum to carry on. Mm, yeah. yeah. Really to find a purpose, right? Mm. Mm. Okay, so now we're going to move, move on to the next section about starting out on your own. What made you decide to start out on your own? You know, because after having practice, you know, you see all the pain and the sweat and all that and uh, being on your own, you know, you are now without any form of support. So tell us about that. I started my own practice because I wanted to do more experimentative work at a smaller scale. Because as with most artists, I think we all yearn for that creative freedom, uh, which I found it hard to get when I was doing large-scale condominium projects. And the truth is, I don't even know who I'm designing for. <laughs> right? I, don't, I really don't know who I'm designing for. I mean, I don't even know the individual unit, the client and all that, right? Yeah, so I kind of felt like that was missing. Mm -hmm. So when the opportunity presented itself, I, I just couldn't say no. Yeah. And what was that opportunity? So that opportunity came uh, sometime uh, early 2016. Uh, and that's the project called The Living Grid House. Uh, it's actually an ENA work. Uh, so the client wanted to do some uh, ENA work and then to kind of like spruce up the interior because it was it was old. Yeah, and then uh, so that was early of 2016. And then uh, back then, right, I, I didn't have, L Architects wasn't, wasn't incorporated, right? Because early 2016. And then so in sometime in March 2016, I decided that, okay, if I had to do this project, so it's more like, circumstantial right that I have to set up a company now like I'm going to do this project yeah so so that that was how we started la. was that the very first project or was it that you uh, a series of buns 
Okay, so a series of bands, we were only operating uh, as a design consult consultant. So I left NQPL 2014. So between 2014 and 2016, I was actually helping my uncle. Um, and so the project, a series of bands, was actually initiated by him. Uh, it's actually in Malaysia. He kind of like bought this piece of land and then he wanted to do some feasibility study for residential. Uh, but in the end, we kind of like he also wanted to build like a office there for to to kind of like kickstart this uh this this project. And then I saw like there were these abandoned buildings. They were two stories. Uh, and it was like sitting in a very nice and quaint and uh uh kind of like site context. So I didn't really want to make it too commercial. Uh, and so I created like a series of buns. Yeah, just like oh, and from scratch. No, because it's adaptive reuse, because there were some abandoned structures, like I think they were building shop houses. So like I, I'm not sure why I didn't really dig further, but uh I think someone was building something there and maybe subsequently the site was then sold to my uncle. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it just came with those uh half-built uh kind of like structures. Um Actually, my uncle was very nice. I was like, okay, if you don't want to use these structures, you can, you can just, you can just remove it and and, and start start anew. But I said no. I said I I I want to keep those structures and then I want to turn it into something. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful project. By the way. <laughs> Thank you. It's uh, really nice. Um. So okay. So talking about starting a firm. Uh. Just out of curiosity. So the the hastily set up firm, the L, is it just your surname, <laughs> Lim L Architects? Yes, so I am secretly attributing it to my dad's family that has uh, uh, influenced me quite a bit. Right, okay, that's, that's cool. Very understated. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so on both ends of, about running a business or running your studio, uh, what's the best thing about it and what's the most difficult thing? So the best thing is I, of course, get a lot of creative freedom now. Uh, and I'm not just talking about design aspects, but uh, I can be a bit more innovative in terms of my working routines and also being creative with staff benefits, right? Which I think I will not share in this podcast because I don't know if they work. <laughs> still still kind of like trying them out. Uh, I've shared with a few industry friends. Uh, yeah, and I get uh, mixed reviews for it. So I think the most difficult part um, is to handle a difficult client on my own. Because in the past, I had directors, right? I had supervisors and directors, superiors, I mean. And, and so let's say, if, let's say if the client uh, wants to remove something in this design or the client is not happy with this, I'll be like, Mangkok, the client said this. <laughs> you know, can you can you go and uh, speak to the client about it? You know, but but now I I have to attend to all these myself. So in short, opening my own firm is is definitely a roller coaster, right? And I think on the best days, it felt like the greatest thing that I ever done for myself. But on the worst, it gives me sleepless nights. I don't know if you have experienced that before, but it's really true. It's true. Okay. And I'm a Christian. And so this journey has made me gone down on my knees praying many times in church. Yeah. I mean, I just want to say this. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I mean, I can fully understand. You know, the, the, the beginning is always tough. 
Uh, I mean, for every small studio, you know, but <laughs> it will come to a point where when you uh, are able to have some trustworthy deputies, mm. then they kind of like, it's more like you spread out the stress, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because now you're handling like, if it's like a small studio, you handle all the clients, the stress, but when you have deputies, then it's spread out, it's a bit more manageable, you know, so just hang in there, it will get better. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so uh, I want to talk a bit about your projects because anyway, that's it's the heart of your practice, right? I really appreciate that uh, while there's an underlying form follow function kind of sensibility, which is quite clear in your design, um, but there is always also kind of like a clear effort, you know, to create an identity for every space and building that you do. Uh, a certain considered effort to add a sprinkling of beauty, you know, something quite frivolous, but they look they look good. And, and for me, there's nothing wrong with that because Artists and designers, a big part of our job is to create beauty in this world, after all, right? Um, so, I don't know, I mean, that's my interpretation of your works, but can you share with us your design philosophy, your design process uh, as you do your projects? Okay, so let's maybe start with um, design process. So, to, to be honest, I don't... I don't pick up the pencil immediately after site visits and start sketching away in my office. The first step really is to craft an interesting brief. I actually spend a lot of my time at the beginning thinking about project strategies and to kind of like reinterpret and reimagine the brief in different ways. Um, but of course, still uh, bearing in mind the kind of current context we're in. And why I say that is because like certain context brings about certain thinking uh at during that 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 moment or era. So in short, I try to tease out the actual question that I want to address in each project. But before that, I actually would run through in my mind, like, oh, okay, what have other designers done to solve this problem? And why did they do it in that manner? You know, I like all these questions will run through my head. And then, so to me, I've always felt that determining the brief is the most creative moment in my whole design process. Because I just think like, um, you know, we always have clients brief that and, and all these things that we need to address too. But I think that architecture can be very superficial if we simply just address all the immediate needs and uh, pragmatic of things. So I'm a firm believer of having that layer of poetry over a very utilitarian program. I think that sense of wonder and delight, uh, it does add an artistic dimension to a piece of work. And uh, that usually is what connects stronger with people's emotions. And to me, that is architecture. Well said. I and mean, it's also like what Louis Kahn had said, you know, architecture is about creating wonder. Mm. Um, you cited Miss Venero's work as an inspiration, uh, in particular the Barcelona Pavilion, which you mentioned. Has that changed? Are there any other architects uh, who have inspired you or in influenced you uh, in your way of designing now that you've been in the industry for a few years? So I told you about my experience about Barcelona Pavilion, which I won't, I won't go into that here. Um, I, I think... I just like works that has a strong emotional connection. I don't really have a particular architect 
that I follow very closely. Yeah, because I prefer to like maybe follow like like when I look at particular work and I'm like, wow, this is this this feels different. It's a like some projects you look at it and you're like, wow, this is a non-referential work, right? Like, or you see a particular and be like, I've seen this before. You know, like this this idea like just keeps repeating itself, right? In different in different ways. Yeah. So in short, I don't I don't really follow anyone closely. So how about some of the buildings that you love or that you that wow you, you know, like you say non-referential works? Oh some of them, okay, like example, uh I really love Peter Zumthor's work. Oh, yeah. uh, but I have not had the chance to visit. Uh, always see them in books and magazines and I read a lot about him. Um, I want to one day to visit uh Tomovals in Switzerland. Yeah, I yeah, I, I, I hope I get to do that. Yeah. So that's that's what I can share for now. I do a spa treatment there as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently you can stay there, I think. Like there there's like a hotel room and stuff. Yeah, I'm sure it costs an arm and a leg, but <laughs> it's worth the experience. <laughs> Uh, okay, I, I also want to talk about some of your uh, projects because I think each of your projects seem to come from a central idea of, of thought, which you, you actually mentioned just now. Um, so I, I want to understand a bit more about the driving force behind some of these projects, which, uh, which I thought are beautifully done. Uh, I mean, series of bands we talked about already. So maybe you can share a little bit about Greek House and House of Trees, which uh, won, you know, the Merit Prize at the SIA Architectural Design Awards. So let's uh, maybe zoom into Greek House and House of Trees. Okay, I, I'm i a person where I like the purity of design ideas. Um, so perhaps that's why you kind of like picked up that there's a central idea. Because I find that when I put in too many ideas into a project, it often kind of dilutes the scheme. So let's talk about uh, the Living Great House, which is our first ANA project. Um, you know what Sentosa Cove is like, right? <laughs> All these very ostentatious houses that is like vibe, like like trying to vie for attention, uh, a attention seeking piece of work, and so. For the Living Great House, I wanted to do the reverse. I just wanted to use very simple aluminium uh, hollow sections to do up a facade. And of course, to then incorporate all these uh, greenery within the grids. Yeah, and actually what I was trying to do is I was trying to hide the house behind uh, the greenery and not make it like stand out so much. You know what I mean? Like doing the reverse. Yeah, but in doing that, Apparently, it created more interest, yeah, when people walk past, like, you know, and yeah, so, 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 and also, it's actually my way of saying, like, because the houses in Sentosa Curve are really expensive, and they actually, if you look at uh, how the master plan is being done, uh, it doesn't have a white frontage. And then, so your, the piece of house would either be fronting the, um, the, the river, uh, the man-made river, or then would then face the sea, the sea view. Yeah, so then I feel like, hey, actually, 
a good proportion of the house do not have views, right? So then I feel like I wanted to create views for rooms that were facing the, the houses. So that's that was the starting point. So for House of Trees uh, is actually our first new reaction work. Um, so when I went down to site, uh, I mean, anyone that has gone to the site of House to Trees will definitely be overwhelmed because immediately in front of the house is just a, a, a six-lane carriage traffic. Yeah, just so much noise, so much bus, like you get double-decker buses outside, lorries and all that. And it's not like my client... Um, it's not like my client picked this site as well because this piece of land was actually gifted by their parents. And so, um, yeah, it, it was just uh, like they, they kind of like handed down this, this, this house to the brothers to redevelop into a pair of semi-detached house. But you know, you know, consistently uh, the qualities of what we want for a house, right? It's uh, we want... Um, it to be livable, uh, we want tranquility. Like these qualities will never change, right? Irregardless of where you build this house. And so I formulated a question for myself. So I said, um, can I create uh, an interior space where I feel like it's more livable, uh, it's more tranquil, despite the context, despite the bad context? And so I created this portal frame uh, where we will house trees. And, and for me, I am quite a nature-loving person. And I've always felt that the structure of trees is really beautiful. So like I don't want to just put like potted plants and all that. Yeah, so, so there was that kind of intervention of wanting to really put trees on the facade. So when you move into the interior space, uh, which I wish I could bring you. <laughs> you Why not one of these days. If you can. Yes, no, actually, we 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 are we're gonna have Aki tours on the 17th of September for House of Trees in conjunction with uh Aki Fest. Okay, great. Yeah, happy. then you will feel like you feel like all of a sudden you've forgotten about the context of the house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you move in. And I think these emo emotional aspects again is what I would like to search for in each of these projects. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Okay, so looking at your great uh, house of living, living great house and house of trees, um, you do put quite a lot of uh, greenery in your facades. So um, I want to touch a bit about the responsibility of an architect on sustainability. So, I mean, of course, we know that plants do keep the temperature of a building down, um, but with new materials and new research, using greenery now is kind of like a first-level sustainability. Um, what more can an architect do, you know, in facilitating sustainability in buildings? And also going one step back, sustainability in construction itself. Okay, I am going to be very honest because... I I really, really didn't start the project from a sustainability angle. But of course, it's always at the back of my mind when I do projects. I mean, like to me, all these green mark point system, which I am not subjected to because I'm doing landed house, but use it as a point of um, discussion. 
I feel like all these green mark point system cannot measure or quantify the emotional aspect and delightfulness of a design, right? So, I mean, if I look at House of Trees, I actually do know like perhaps a lot of designers would then just screen up the whole facade and maybe channel whatever views internally via courtyard. I mean, this has been done many times for contexts like this. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, these are row houses. So when you when you go to site, right, you see like wow, the things that people have done, right? And like to me, if I I did that, I find that the spaces inside would be very depressing. Yeah. So again, I want to reiterate my point is that the emotional aspects of a design or in particular in this house cannot be created if I simply use a green mark checklist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you know, right, because of these these three years of pandemic, if I don't know if you realize like like when when like we couldn't go out, people actually wanted to go out even more to engage with nature, right? There's somehow a renewed interest in the natural world again. Yeah, and so maybe very timely, this house was kind of like built during COVID and then handed over during COVID. And my clients, because we can't travel and there will be lockdowns, my client would have spent um, quite a lot of time inside the house itself. Mm -hmm. And so can you imagine if I just screened up everything and they had no views because all they look out was to uh, sixteen traffic condition. I think that kind of, it just make the living conditions in that way not sustainable. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what I can say. Um, so uh, on the topic of sustainability, uh, that leads us to your epic project, A Brick and Mortar Shop, which seems to be a lot about reduce and reuse. Uh, and also congratulations on winning the highest accolade at the SIA Awards Design of the Year. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, so, okay, so this project, um, how did you, I mean, how did this project come about? And I, I think the project looks uh, quite sustainable to me and very clever because you play with very basic materials that are not expensive and actually came up with a very unique design. You also recycle broken towels, which is very sustainable <laughs> uh, because those are off-cuts, right? And um, I don't know, but I mean, as an onlooker, it looks a bit like the budget constraint has kind of like given rise to a very clever design solution. I don't know. Uh, can you share with us more about this project and how did you come up with this idea of sawing up cement blocks and using off-cut natural stones? And how do you even convince the client of such an unfinished look? Yeah, so Bread and Mota is our first commercial project. I mean, by now, you know my background, right? I was doing mostly residential projects in NKPL. And then when I started my own practice, I was once again doing landed houses and then apartment interiors. It was a very comfortable program for me, maybe perhaps even too comfortable. And it is, I mean, it usually is like that also when your portfolio shows like you seem to be an expert at a particular genre, it's hard for you to jump to another genre. Yeah, so when someone finally gave me the opportunity to do a commercial interior, 
I was so excited. But then I started having anxieties as well because I don't know how to start a commercial project. So I just did a few like like do some few studies uh, by visiting some of these kitchen appliances showroom and shops and then um navigated my own design direction. In fact, some of these I, I won't give names, but some of these shops that I visited had very poor retail experiences. Yeah, and I felt like um and, and it just carry off a very ubiquitous presence. Seems like you know, uh kitchen appliances shop didn't need to have any experience at all, but I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. Yeah. So then um I all of a sudden got inspired by the term brick and motor, uh, which actually means uh physical presence of a business, right? And actually coupled with my own personal uh curiosity with the cross-section of things. Um, I don't know if you have seen, but you know, the cross-section of fruits and vegetables, they usually have so much variations, textures and details. Um, like so I'll give you a few examples. Like if you've seen the cross-section of a fig, if you've seen a cross-section of an artichoke or strawberry, they they are just they're so intricate. You know, like I would even say perhaps more interesting than what you see on the external. So I was very curious to see what's inside a hollow brick. I I actually took a brick back to my office from some random site. I told the workers, um, can you give me this brick? Yeah. yeah, and then I started looking at it from many angles. So you know how bricks, the these hollow bricks actually have holes, right? Uh, on on this side. And so actually, uh, we the first the first concept that we pitched for uh, a brick and motor shop was to have the bricks being laid in this side, and so then that would create holes in uh, holes. But then, uh, one of the pro product manager actually said, "Oh, this is going to be a maintenance nightmare. Can you imagine dust and dirt being trapped within these cavities?" Right. Um, I took it well. And so I said, um, okay, never mind. I'm going to think of another way um, how I can detail this brick wall. Mm. Yeah. And then, so material-wise, uh, there are only three elements if you if you see the project. So there's cement brick, uh, and then unadorned plywood, and then off-cut stones. Actually, each of them are bearing their own level of intricacies and narrative. Um, so Brad and Bonta explain. So unadorned plywood, I'm using unadorned plywood, not just using it for the sake of using it. it because if you understand the mechanics of how these kitchen appliances showroom work, you will know that actually they actually do have some problems that you have to resolve for them. Otherwise, um, it's going like over the years because because they have a lot of appliances that keeps coming in and it needs to be updated. And then so then they will change the carcass. So once they change the carcass, if that particular laminate or veneer that you specified before is discontinued, then they are just going to anyhow use something else to replace it. And that's why over the years you would see that, hey, how come how come like the design looks very like a patchwork, right? So to, to prevent that from happening, I had to use something that I know would have longevity. So even if, because I can't control this business aspect of how the shop works, if they have to change the carcass, they have to change. 
right? But I want to control like uh, perhaps maybe let's see five to 10 years, the, the, the client would still be able to manage, you know, the materials. So that's the reason why we use uh, plywood. And then uh, off-cut stones was used uh, because I because I'm essentially doing residential projects and I've seen how so much waste is being, being um, created. And some of them, I feel it's quite sad because people don't people want to use natural materials, but then they don't want to accept natural blemishes or like uneven tonalities. I mean, this is really the characteristic of using natural materials anyway, right? And so I decided to just salvage all these and then uh, lay it on the floor as like crazy pave uh, uh, laying method. Um, I feel like the equation really works well because like on all three fronts, because uh, the supplier is really happy. They have somewhere to offload this because, you know, traditionally, right, they will collect all these waste and then they will throw it into the wasteland. So in Singapore context, not sure if you know, like, if you throw something in the wasteland, you have to pay the government money. You cannot just throw for free. So now they have somewhere to throw and perhaps make a small profit out of it, right? And then for us as designers, uh, the floor is beautiful. I love it. I don't think it's even a design compromise. And all of a sudden, all these natural blemishes and uneven tonalities, they, they no longer matter. In, in, in that whole uh, design uh, scheme. And then for the client, client is also happy, right? Because client can get, uh, because client is always like, also cost-driven, right? So client be like, okay, I, I will take this at, uh, at a low cost. So the synergy and the equation just works really beautifully here. So, so maybe that's also why this piece of work has appealed to many. I'm not sure, but I, I'm, that's what I'm guess, guessing. And the, when you first uh, proposed the, the, the ideas to your client, they, were they, they, they okay with the unfinished look or they will take them a while to accept it? Or how was the reaction from them? Honestly, uh, they didn't question this aspect. Yeah, I mean, we did do renderings of it and all they've seen the visuals they also understand what we are gearing up at because, I mean, I really just genuinely wanted to create a different retail experience. Mm -hmm. right. And I realized that if I wanted to do that, I had to try something new. And the client is with me on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the client, I, I'm very glad the client is with me on this. And uh, we just took that both step together. Mm. Okay, cool. Um, so, do you, do you think that the outcome will be any different if, let's just say, the budget for this project is, say, double? <laughs> That's a very good question. Uh, I think no. Because uh, I, I actually put up a, a, a challenge for myself for each project, usually, that I do. And for this one, the challenge that I put up for myself was I just wanted to use the most ubiquitous and commonplace material. Yeah, and, and so there's different type of bricks, right? So there is like cement bricks and then there's also red bricks. And I was just I was just thinking to myself, no, I opted for cement brick and not red brick because actually cement brick is two cents cheaper than red brick. And so you have cement already brick, done the red 
red bricks with uh, about series of <laughs> yeah 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 just really really just bent on using the cheapest of the cheapest right and then I mean cement brick is everywhere not just in Singapore but all over the world and and just easily available so it's just something not so special but I felt like I I could create a piece of unique work out of it and using a ordinary material uh, in a way that nobody else has done it before. And so when I look back, if let's say you if, if you have given me more budget, double, triple, I would still want to put up this challenge for myself. That's cool. Yeah, outcome is, is great. Um, so with this big win at the SIO Award, which which uh, has traditionally been uh, won by you know more established architects, um, is your phone now ringing with uh, requests? And uh, what to you is the value of awards for designers? Mm, yes, uh, we do get more visibility now. Uh, was that how you know us? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and 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 that actually does translate to us getting more inquiries uh but moving forward i actually do want to put this award things aside and just continue our path for to search for more tr uh, non-transferable ideas uh because i actually do feel that these accolades can get to you and perhaps make you feel like more special than you think you really are. I I don't want, it's just a self-check. I, I don't want to fall into those traps. But of course, there is really no way I can accurately articulate how happy uh, I am to have received this recognition in my 30s. Yeah, because even when you are in your 40s, right, people still say you're a young architect. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's a very yeah. professional architecture. Yeah. So so short so actually shortly after the awards, I flew to Melbourne. Uh and then uh Mr. Mok Weiwei was very kind to have linked me up with Miss Kirsten Thompson. So both of them were the jurors for this year's SIA Awards. Mm -hmm. So when I met her in person, she kind of shared with me the back-end discussions. Uh, uh, and one of the things she brought up actually has stuck with me so she actually said because um, she said that there were a few we okay we were actually given only a stipulated eight minutes to do the presentation if your project got shortlisted so she told me that there were actually a few architects that and and she said that she used the word experienced architects even that struggled trying to explain their designs within this eight minutes. Mm. And then she told me that, um, you know, if the design direction had good clarity, it definitely can be communicated within those eight minutes. And if they can't, then it's quite telling. Mm. So when I went back and I, I, pondered, I pondered about what she said, and I think it's true. So maybe it's also something that I should constantly check in with myself that whatever design direction I'm proposing, I must be able to relate it within that short amount of time. Mm. Yeah. 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 I think clarity always uh, leads yeah. to good design. Yeah. So I, was, I would like to also share something uh, to encourage young uh, archie bosses 
I think I don't know. There are a few. There are a few people in the thirties also now setting up their own companies. Um, maybe not to wait for that perfect project to do good works, because the truth is right. Chances are you are like you likely won't get a museum or art gallery type of commission at the start of your practice. That's the cold hard truth. Uh, not sure if anyone even noticed, but the two projects that won us awards, one didn't have the best sites or, or best program, right? One of them really really had a bad site context. That's House of Trees. Um, I mean, I do believe that people might actually have turned down that job thinking that a better site will come along. And then another one that won us a design of the year had a perfunctory program and brief. That's a brick and mortar shop. I mean, to put it plainly, it really is just a kitchen appliances showroom. Not a very exciting program, right? But I say take it and seize the opportunity to still attempt to do good works and push for some meaningful boundaries. I, I think on that note, uh, my experience is uh, I always tell younger designers that uh, there are no dream projects, there are only dream clients, you know. I think it's so important to, which is why I ask you about the brick and mortar client, like, would they shock right, when you propose it? Because from my experience is that sometimes when you have a brilliant idea and, and some clients just, you know, they just say, no, it's not for me. And that's the end of the story, you see. And uh, to find a client who's completely with you in spirit and is supportive of your design. It's almost like uh, finding a patron for me, you know, that, yeah. okay, you know, we'll leave it up to you. So the dream client is uh, really, I think for me, uh, yeah. it comes down to a little bit of luck. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I do have those kind of roadblocks like what you have described. Uh, yeah, it's, it's quite sad. So then actually I would then take this idea and just keep it somewhere, hoping that I can I can use it at an appropriate time and situation again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Okay, so uh that's the end of the the official interview. Now we are gonna have the fun quick fire round, okay? So okay. uh keep it spontaneous, don't think too much, whatever that comes to mind, okay? Okay, question one, favorite book. Uh wow, favorite book uh Peter Zumto Atmospheres. Okay. Favorite movie. Wow, a beautiful mind. Ah, okay, cool. Favorite musician. Wow, I really don't have one. <laughs> okay. Uh favorite artist. This is a tough one, eh? I don't have it. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Favorite pair of shoes. Oh, I like Eru. It's actually a Spanish brand. It's my 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 recent obsession. Okay, cool. We'll we'll probably request for you to take a picture so we can put it on the Instagram to show people. Yeah. Sure. It. Okay. Um, next question. You're at the tail end of being a millennial and still one, actually. Uh so is there anything that is unique to a millennial's lifestyle? Uh your lifestyle, in other words. Yes. I think uh, we are very into social media, right? Yeah, like our era, very into social media, very into all these pretty pictures and all. I actually sometimes get very sucked into this whole whole Instagram thing myself. Yeah, like I can look at the image and be like, wow, so nice at uh, the interior. And 
yeah, but I, I, I really try, I have to try very hard to, to draw myself back. Uh, because sometimes they are just seductive, but they have no real meaning in them. Yep. Yeah. Okay, next one. What do you value most in life? Relationships. Um, your favorite villain in real or real life? Well, wow, this caught me by surprise. I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Last last question in the quick round. Um, what revolution do you hope to see in the world? I, I mean, we're in the era where digitalization is coming on board quite strong, and like um. Uh, like people want to do prefabrication, right? And to create all these molds so that because I think we're area where is talking about fast consuming, right? And I I find that a lot of things, not just architecture, just have lost that personal touch. I I hope like we can bring them back. Yes, I understand that uh, we want to be a progressive uh, society. We want to find efficient ways to build things, to design things. But we mustn't forget that the emotional aspect of humans, right? Which is so important, you know? And to me, I really don't believe in a world like that because every one of us are so unique, mm-hmm. right? We have different experiences and we have different backgrounds and to say everyone would stay in a standard kind of house, I just don't believe in a world like that. Mm, okay, so to hopefully bring back the human touch in many things in life. Yeah. Okay, and that marks the end of our interview. Uh, thank you so much, Xinghui. Yes, Thanks thank you. For very thank enjoyable you. and uh, insightful interview of your yes. and personal life. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Studio SML podcast. To hear the stories of more Singaporean architects and designers, head to www.studiosml.net, where you can find out more about Studio SML as well as all our podcast episodes.